So you call an ion is an atom that's not happy and it's trying to get attached. Sounds like a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> I was 15 years old when I met my wife, which is the story I want to open with today. I guess if I was telling my girls, I would, be, I would say, this is the story of how I met your mother. <laughs> and they love this story. Um, some of you have heard me tell it. It, it will help me illustrate what we're, the question we're trying to answer today. The question we're trying to answer today is, what does worshiping Jesus have to do with daily life? How does it impact my daily life? Because we, you know, as a kid, I thought of worship as something that was like, whatever, let's just get through this, because I'm sitting there in my middle school, high school self with a suit on, yes, suit, coat, and tie, and I'm you know, not wanting to be in that. I don't care where I am, but I didn't want to be in that. That was my church experience. So worship was not high on my list of priorities at that age. So at 15, it was 1979, it was a week before school started. We had just moved to Somerville a few weeks before that. My brother was a few years younger than me, so I was about to go into high school, and I had been in grade school all in the same school district in Columbia first through eighth grade, and so this was traumatic for me, right? All my friends are in Columbia, and I'm going to this, I'm going to a different high school, and uh, I didn't know anybody except a couple of people I'd met in my neighborhood, but they were all younger than me. But there was this one girl across the street. She was um, a rising eighth grader, and she invited me to go roller skating on a Friday night at her church. So she was breathing, so I went, Okay. And we roller skated, and it was, it was really nice. It was over at Somerville Baptist Church in their gym. While we were there, though, she asked a very unusual question, and I should have seen where this was coming from. I really don't know, honestly. But she said, who is the prettiest girl in the whole gym? Point her out. I'm a 15-year-old boy, right? I have no idea what she's really asking. And so I point out Anita. I point out Anita. Yes, I did. She's not in here. She's down the hall teaching kids. But I told her I was going to tell you all this again because it does such a good job. Just let me, let me keep on unrolling this. So I pick her out, and then she says, great, you're going to meet her. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And she says, Art. And the biggest guy in the gym comes over to make sure that happens. And so I meet her. We skate in a circle oval. I'm trying to do two things, not fall because I'm not a good skater, and I'm praying she'll be in one of my classes. I'm just like, oh, please, Lord, bring this together. And she's in none of my classes, but we have the same lunch. So, yes, it was even better. Um, so it takes me four years to move her from friend to girlfriend, and it takes another four years to get engaged, and it takes another four years for our first kids. But you can kind of get the idea. Things moved along well. She became, in many ways, the center of my life. I treasure her to this day. And I think it's very, I think it's very true to say that I have been transformed by that experience of treasuring her over those years. And I think some of you can relate to what I'm talking about. When you treasure something or someone, it does something to you. It transforms you. And depending on what that is or who that is, depends on to what extent it transforms you. We're going to look at a passage that takes this to the top level, okay? 
And it's going to be applicable to you and me because the potential treasure is Christ Jesus himself. And if you're like this guy when I was 15 years old, I didn't treasure Christ. I went to church, youth choir, handbell choir, acolyte, youth group, confirmation class. I checked all the boxes and was an official member of the United Methodist Church when I went off to college. Didn't know who Jesus was. Well, I'd heard of him. I'd been to Sunday school. I knew things about God and Jesus, but I didn't know the gospel. I didn't understand the gospel, and I'd never truly trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I was a good, well, I really wasn't, but I, came, I could play the game enough to where you say, hey, he's a pretty good kid. In college, my freshman year, Anita and I have been dating now for about a year. We're about three weeks in, and we break up. Now, when you treasure something like that and you lose it, right, what happens? When you try to find your identity in somebody, you have an identity crisis, don't you? Well, I did. I did because she broke up with me, for the record. I had my turn later. We had a rough first two years in college, but we finished strong. And, uh, but you see what I'm saying? There's a connection here. Worship isn't just something you do for an hour. Worship isn't just singing songs to some creator in the sky. Worship is saying, I value this so much that I'm orienting my life around it or this person. Okay? And Jesus makes the case through his example and through his words that he is worthy of our worship above anything else that we treasure or value. He's worthy of that. Okay, We could just say creator and be done with all the reasons that you and I really need because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him to, you know, creating us. But I realize that you know, we're hard-headed and hard-hearted and therefore we need more reasons than that. So I'm going to let scripture speak to that in Matthew 17. But I just want you to hear, this is the point. So the question we're asking has got five parts. We're only answering one today. You can skip next week if you don't want to hear the other four, okay? But this one's big. And really, Matthew has been building to this, right? Last week, Chris walked us through chapter 16, and that is the pinnacle of the book of Matthew because it, it makes it very clear who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? And they list off who they said he was. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. And Peter answered... You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is another word for Messiah. Christ is the Greek. Messiah is the Hebrew for the same word. It means anointed one. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have been anointed by God, that is significant, right? In fact, if you are the only one anointed by God or the most important one anointed by God, that makes this the most important anointing in the creation of our universe. And Jesus is that, the one and only Son of God, the actual Son of God, full of humanity and yet full of divinity. Okay? It's about Jesus. That's why we sing about Jesus. That's the way God has chosen to reveal himself most vividly to you and me, through a man named Jesus who lived in history 2,000 years ago and is alive today. So with that, let's go to chapter 17. Going to look at 13 verses. 
and we're just going to walk through them, and I want you to see it for yourself, and I'll just shine a light on a few things as we walk through it. We end chapter 16 with Jesus predicting for the first of several times, he's predicting his death, burial, resurrection to his disciples. He's telling them, they're going to kill me in Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead, okay? They're always upset after he says that. Why would they be upset? He's going to rise from the dead. That's not what they hear. They hear, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. They don't hear the rest. They, they can't get past because this is why, at least one reason. If he dies, they're going to die. You see it? They're afraid. They are scared for their lives. Six days later, okay, Luke says eight days later. depends on how you want to count the days. They're saying the same thing. Eight partial days, six full days. After six days, Jesus took him, with him, Peter, James, and John. These are called, considered the inner circle of the 12, okay? We all have these circles, right? If I put all the people that you knew on a, this tabletop, you could organize them in names of people who are closest to you, and you put them closer to the middle, and people who are, you barely know, they're out near the edge, right? You could scatter those names around this table. Jesus is here. The three closest people to him, at least the three closest disciples, would have been Peter, James, and John. Sometimes Andrew got to come too, okay? And if there was anybody else in that circle, probably Mary is right there, okay? He takes them on the ultimate field trip. He takes them up a mountain. They're going hiking, all right? Um, now, if you, if you read the Bible, you don't even have to study it. If you just read the Bible, you'll notice there's a lot of mountaintop experiences that happen in the Bible, okay? There's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, but the one that I think that stands out to me is that mountains were used as places of worship in ancient times. If you go and you, if you travel the, the world and you look at sacred places, they're usually built up high. Okay, even the city Jerusalem is on this giant plateau that juts out into these, these valleys, kind of wrap around it. One of the reasons that's true, I'll just tell you, this is, you know, inside baseball history stuff. They put them up there because you know what flows downhill, right? When it rains, it cleans the gutters from, right? And so the lower you go, the dirtier your streets are and the nastier they smell because, yeah. So they put the holy places up high. Makes sense, right? That's the cleanest place they can find. And so it didn't matter whether you were um, worshiping Pan or Buddha or any other ancient, you know, whatever. They put those up high. So they're going, this happens on a mountain. They think this happens on Mount Hermon. Okay, so let's go back to our map. All right, Mediterranean Sea, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, okay. North is up, always north is up on the map, okay? And you have Judea region, which is where Jerusalem is, Samaria, Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, and just at the northern edge of this Israeli territory, we found Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon has a lot of shrines on it to other gods. Where has Jesus just been? He made his only trip into Gentile territory prior to this. It's almost like he's making a statement to all the other gods. Now, that's not the focus here, but you just need to kind of know that's the context. He is making a statement here. 
in front of all the gods of the world. And he's therefore making a statement to all the people of the world who worship all the different things that people worship, all the different things that people treasure, sometimes good things, like your future wife, sometimes not so good things. So he takes these three up, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. So it's just the four of them. There he was transfigured before them, okay? A couple of things about this. He's transfigured before them, which means they're there, and they're seeing this with their own eyes. Now, we don't use the word transfigured. Maybe try the word transformed. That might work better for you. It means exactly the same thing, okay? We heard the word trans a lot lately, transgender. The word trans means a cross, a cross, across genders. You see, we've got that gender confusion thing going on in our culture right now, right? Transport, okay? How many of you have seen the movie, old movie, Smokey and the Bandit? Not that old. It's still in color, right? All right? To the young ones, that's an old movie, right? What's that movie about? Transporting a truckload of beer from one coast to the other across the nation, Okay? I just had to work smoking the bandit in. That's the only reason I did that. Okay, so, so transformed or transfigured, the word there that's being across is metamorpho. Okay, I don't like to throw Greek words around because it doesn't really matter, except that, that words matter. It doesn't ma- Never mind. Metamorpho is where we get our word metamorphosis, which if you studied 7th, 8th, ninth grade science, you know that's the process through which a butterfly comes from a caterpillar or a worm via cocoon. In that cocoon, there's a transformation happens. The chrysalis, I think. I'm not sure where the chrysalis is in the process, but that's what's happening there. So there's this traumatic, drum, <laughs> dramatic transformation that occurs And that's the word that is being used here to describe the transformation, the change that happens in Jesus from being a man just there wearing khaki robes and somebody who is so bright with light that you cannot look at him. So he's transfigured before them, so they witnessed this. His face shone like the sun. Remember the uh, solar eclipse we did? What did you have to have to look at the solar eclipse? What did you have to wear? Sunglasses, dark sunglasses, so you didn't hurt your eyes because it's so bright. His face is shining like the sun. It's a simile, but it is also literally what happened, okay? Uh, and his clothes become as, became as white as, as light. Just then he, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, this is interesting to me because it's like, whoa, out of the blue, we get Moses and Elijah. Now, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, you probably still have heard of at least Moses, maybe Elijah. These are two of the giants of the faith in the Old Testament scriptures or the Jewish scriptures, if you will, okay? Moses is famous for leading the, the Jewish slave, slaves into nationhood via the, the parting of the Red Sea, okay? And so that's around 1500 BC, 13, that's 3,500 years ago, okay? Elijah comes along later, probably five, six hundred years later, and he has this big showdown with the priests um, of the, um, there's like six, four, five, four, four hundred, five hundred priests, and he has this showdown, it's him versus these four, five hundred priests, and he calls down lightning and it comes, okay? He calls down fire, it consumes the sacrifice, and he wins that battle. It's just dramatic. These are men of faith dramatic faith. They've seen dramatic things in their lives. Elijah hadn't even died yet. I mean, he just, God just came and just took him home. That's where he, you know, him and Enoch 
We're like, we don't need to do that dying thing. God's just taking us home. That's the level of spirituality we're talking about. And they're there with Jesus. Now, Peter and the disciples would have seen them. And once they figured out who was who, they would have gone, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And they would have put them all on the same level. They would have seen them all as super saints, okay? Because they still didn't understand, even though they had said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, they still wouldn't have understood the deity piece of that, I don't think. So what, are they t- what does it say they're doing? It says, and I missed this the first hundred times I read it. It says, um, just then, verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I missed that part, talking with Jesus. What are they doing? Well, this, is, this story, this, this passage is shared in two other places. You can find it in Mark 9 and you can find it in Luke 9. If you go to Luke 9, verse 31, he, Luke likes to give a little more detail. And he says, they're talking about his departure. In fact, uh, let's, let me just flip there and just read it to you because it says a little more than that. So this is Luke 9.31, and it says this. Jesus uh, says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay, so they're at least talking about the ascension, but they're probably talking about the the whole shooting match. The cross, so his death, his burial, his resurrection, his 40 days of reappearing, and then the ascension when he goes back to be with the Father, okay? He's his departure. All of that could, could constitute his departure. Maybe it's just one thing, but they're talking to him about that. Now, Jesus has already predicted he's going to be crucified. He's already told his disciples he's going to be crucified. So they're not telling him that in and of itself, though they may be filling in the lines a little bit. They may be giving him more information. We really don't know other than God wouldn't do it for nothing, and God, he loves his son. Well, how do we know that God the Father loves his son? Well, because of what follows. He tells us this, okay? So let's keep going. He says, Peter gets in. So you know how Peter, he likes to speak and then think. Um, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You hear how they're all equal? And in Luke, we kind of get the, end, the idea here that they're about to leave. He, they, the disciples get the impression the conversation is almost over. And so Peter's like, oh, we need three tailgating tents and a grill. What can we do? Can we make that happen? Because let's just hang out with these guys for a while. This is awesome. But, but that's not what happens because somebody else shows up. The great I am takes center stage. What does he say? What happens? Verse 5, while he was still speaking, that is Peter, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, I'm going to come back to that. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. So that gives you some sense of what's happening there. They are, well, he's going to say terrified. They fell to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up. He said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So God shows up. God the Father shows up. This is the, you can learn a lot of this from context, okay? And God speaks. And I mean, he's a cloud, so he's not, there's no pointing going on. But everybody there knows that he's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about Elijah, and he's not talking about these three disciples. He's talking about Jesus. And the Father says, the voice that is the Father of God says, this is my son, okay? So he's identifying him. This is my son. And we know that the way he's saying this, and we can get this from other passages in the New Testament, this is my one and only son, okay? 
in whom I, you know, whom I love. So this is the beloved son of God. Who the disciples called him the son of God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Even though they don't know what that means, they, they said it because God reveals it to them. Whom I love. Okay, let me just pause. Sidebar, dads. These are good things to say to your kids. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. Now, the le- next part you may or may not be able to say. Father says, with whom I am well pleased. Okay? Now, here's what you can say, dads. I love you even when I'm not pleased with you. Right? You can say that if it's true. And you should. Because your kids are wondering if you're not saying it, unless you say it all the time, and then it loses its meaning. So, you see what I'm saying? Um, once in a while, when I would be out and about with my dad, so my dad was in banking, he was always in a suit, except on Saturdays. And we would go out running errands, and I would hang out with my dad a lot during on Saturdays, and I loved that, except when we would run into somebody he knew, because he would forever always embarrass me, introducing me to these other adults that I have no idea who they are. I don't really care to know who they are, because he's going to say nice things about me. And so I have this mixture of feelings that are like, I'm terrified, this, I'm so embarrassed, and I can't, I'm just soaking in it at the same time. He's proud of me. It means so much to your kids. Okay, don't make it up, be real, but don't keep it in and assume they know. Here's the thing we dads like to do, and this is the last I'll say on it. We like to assume that they see our hard work and our provision for the family as our love for them, and it is an act of love. But we overvalue it, and they don't recognize it until they're over 25. They don't get it until they're working. You see it? And so there's a disconnect there, which is why we have to help them and tell them, state the obvious. Their brains aren't fully formed until they're 25 anyway. We know this. We live with them. We know, right? And, and there's a lot that's not happened yet. And so there's a lot of, we miss each other when we don't have to. So state, the, the father's giving us an example. This is my son whom I love, and whom I am well pleased. What does it mean to please God? How do you please God? Isn't that a great question? Well, the the author of Hebrews answers the question in chapter 11, verse 6, and basically says it by using the negative. It's impossible to please God without faith. Without faith. So however it is that we're supposed to please God, it requires faith. You can't please God by doing the right thing but not doing it by faith. Faith is your motivation. Faith, or I could say it this way, trust. I am resting, trusting. I am, I am fully engaged in believing that God has got this, and I am resting in that comfortably, even though I might be inconsistent in that process, okay? That's how you please God. This is my son in whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And then he gives them the takeaway for today. This is for you and me too. Listen to him, okay? Now, when I was young and I was not acting right and my mom got my attention or tried to get me settled right and to, she would say, listen to me, and then I'd be all over the place looking and look at me, listen to me, right? What is she saying? I need your full attention because I'm going to say something that I want you to do. I don't just want you to hear me. I do want you to hear me, but I want you to do and act on this. You see that? That's the way the Israeli mind worked. That's the way the Hebraic mind worked. The Old Testament scriptures, 
all the way through. Whenever it says hear, it means obey. To hear is to obey. In our Western mindset, we separate the two, right? It's conditional. Oh, I'll listen, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to do that or not. To hear is to obey is the mindset that we are to have whenever God speaks, okay? And God says to those disciples, listen to him. In other words, because I love him, because he's my son, because I am pleased in him, it's a good idea to listen to him. It's in your best interest to listen to him. It's a blessing to those around you if you listen to him and do what he says. What does Jesus say? Remember our summation of the book of Matthew. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. At the end of the book, at the end of Matthew, all authority, Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, and here comes the listen to me part, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. And I'm not sending you out on your own. He says, surely I will be with you until the end of the age. So you can see it all all throughout the book of Matthew. He talks about the authority of Jesus that leads all peoples, all ethnicities, all nations to pledge all allegiance to him for he is worthy because he is worthy of worshiping because that when we treasure him, it transforms us. And that transformation results in us making decisions, better decisions, and it gives us the right motivations behind the decisions and actions we choose to take. Right? How many times have you, and I have, have you and I done the right thing for the wrong reason? Right? How many times have we served God, but it was selfish? How many times have we gone to church just to check the box? Right? I mean, it's better that you go through those disciplines, even when you don't feel like it, than not doing them. But at some point, you need to ask yourself the question, why? Why am I doing this? Am I treasuring Christ? All right, so let's see what he, how he finishes this up. Uh, we're in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, okay, so they're coming down from the mountaintop experience. The hike is almost over. Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? I'm going That's the question you want to ask after he says, I'm going to be raised from the dead? That's what you want to know? Why hasn't... But this just shows you, right? Spiritual blindness affects us even when we're following Jesus until you you have that relationship locked in by grace through faith, right? And they're in this transition, this unique time in all of history when Jesus is leading people to follow him. He has literal followers. He has literal disciples who haven't clicked yet. I don't know that they've been born again yet because this this process that happens for us like that, I think happens over time for us to be able to to see it and understand it a little better from where we're sitting. I don't know. I don't know how he did it, but it does feel like there's some things he does in the early church days that are uniquely done for that season, for those purposes. Now, I just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of theories about that, and that's not my point today. But here, I mean has been raised from the dead. So don't tell anyone. All I'll say is it just kind of in general, I'll just say he is thinking about how this is going to play when it gets public, when it goes public, because he's going to die when it does. 
He knows that the cross is the end of this becoming public. So he's trying to make sure that it doesn't get out too quickly, even though he knows it's inevitable. He just wants to make sure that he does everything the Father wants him to do so that when he's at the cross, he can say, it is finished. Okay? Which he did. All right? Then he says, so he said, then the disciples ask, and this is a legitimate question they ask. It's just, I'm just like, this resurrection. They just don't get it. Um, The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Okay? Now, we just saw Elijah, so, okay, maybe that's why he's fresh on their minds. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. That's significant. He is coming to restore all things. I thought that was Jesus' job. He's He's like a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay? He's showing us what's coming. I think it's Ephesians 1.10. I think it's Colossians 1.19 or 20. They both, in those, in those first chapters of those two letters, Paul writes that Christ is restoring all things under his authority, under his sovereign rule. God, God is doing it through his son Jesus. He is restoring all things. So when you and I look at the news, when you and I look at where our nation is headed, when, you look, when we look at where our world is heading, we need to understand that the end is, while the, it's going to get messier and worse before it gets better, it will get better. It will be changed. There is a restoration that is going to happen. Now, the restoration that is going to happen will be dramatic and it will be um, probably pretty instantaneous. It won't be because you and I did a really good job at the soup kitchen. That transformation that we're doing when we are restoring things in our, with, by God's grace is to give people a foretaste, a, just a sample of what is to come. Okay? It's to remind us and to show the world there are better ways to do life than the way we're doing it. Okay? That's why we say the kingdom of God is here but not yet because it's not here in full yet. All right? But I digress. That was for you, Kara. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they, will not, they did not recognize him. When did Elijah come? They just recognized him on the mountain, not talking about that. But have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So he's connecting what Elijah did, went through, to what Jesus is going to go through, through someone else. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And if you've been with us, you've been reading the book of Matthew, you know that John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus, has been beheaded already by this point because of his firm stand on the purity in the marriage bed to King Herod. And King Herod had him executed because of a series of events that you can read about. But the point is that he was playing the role of Elijah to introduce and pave the way and announce the coming of the Messiah Jesus the Christ. Okay? So Elijah had come. He just came as John the Baptist. I don't know if Elijah came literally and inhabited a man and was just named John the Baptist. I don't know if he was uh, a symbolic version of that. And I don't really care because the point is this they're both pointing to Jesus and what he's doing, what he's done, and he's going to do. And that's what we should be thinking about. Who do we treasure? We're not sitting around singing songs to Elijah or John the Baptist, are we? Right? We're treasuring Jesus because he is the one who died for us. That's why we sang all those songs that talked about blood. You're like, gosh, why do these people sing so much about the blood of Jesus? It's because that blood was shed so mine wouldn't be. It's because he took my place for my sin. That should move us 
emotionally. If I believe I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, and the only way I'm going to get it is if someone takes my punishment, I should be very moved by the person that took it. And it wasn't until my freshman year in college that clicked for me. I'd never understood that. And so I'm sitting there at the end of a Christian concert with my Christian friends from the Baptist Student Union, of all things, as a lost person thinking I'm a Christian. I'm sitting next to all of my buddies, and afterwards they go, well, if I'd known you weren't a Christian, I'd have been praying for you. But it was that night that I realized I'd never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'd never done that. I was riding on my parents' faith. I was riding on all that church stuff I had done, all those boxes I had checked. And those were legitimate things to encourage me to Christ. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But if the gospel is lost in the mix of them, then there's a problem in maybe in the way we handled that. Every church has folks that go through and hear the gospel but don't hear the gospel. I probably heard the gospel. A good chance I heard the gospel. And maybe moved, even took towards Christ. I think all of those things helped me move towards Christ. They made my heart more tender and receptive to it when I did hear it. So I want to give that church the benefit of the doubt, those churches that I grew up in. But at the end of the day, I stand before God for what I believe or don't believe. Okay? And you stand before God. You will stand before God one day. You realize this, right? There's a God. You're not him. You're going to stand before him one day. I'm going to stand before him one day. And we're going to basically have already answered the question whether we trust that he he, he's real or not, that he created us, that he sustains us, and then one day he's going to take us home. And we're going to stand before him in that day. And, and it, I don't know how it unfolds. The Bible doesn't give us most of that detail, and it doesn't have to, because the important thing is that you know you're going to be there. This is not all there is. That's why God sent prophets and teachers and Bible scribes and Jesus to tell us this is not all there is. So what was the question we asked at the very beginning? How does my worship of the Jesus Christ impact my daily life? Well, it impacts your eternity for sure because it has a lot to do with whether or not you trust him for your whole life or not, forever. And it has a lot to do with how you live your life in the here and now too. And that matters too. That matters too. When you treasure Christ, you will change the things that you do on a day-to-day basis, and you will even change the reasons for which you do the things that you do. Okay, like some things in your life you won't change, but you'll do them for a, a better reason because you will begin to understand why this matters. Okay, so, you know, I won't be surprised if there are people in here that have been going to church for a lot of years and have never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It happened to me. I'd been going to church for 18 years, actively involved. Went to college and went to church at college. There was no parent there making me go. I went to church with now. Nita was going too, and that had a little to do with it. Fair, until we broke up, and then what? I had to make a decision myself, and it was during one of those breakups that I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. She was in the room. We were in the room, we were in what used to be called Tillman Hall, the main, one of the oldest buildings on the campus. There's about two, three, four hundred people there. And the, we were at this point, and you know, they had done the full concert, and this concert, this band was called Truth. It was a college band made up of college students, and every year you have different college students because people graduate, right? And the leader of the band, 
Okay, in this case, Roger Braylon, who he was, a, I don't know, minister of music. I don't know. He did this for a living, and he basically administered, and they traveled and toured, and they all, he would always share the gospel at the end of the show. Because at the end, I, I was really mad at Roger. I've never been so saved and, and mad at the same time. <laughs> at the end of the concert, he shares the gospel, and then he says, every head bowed, every eye closed. This is what a lot of preachers do in the invitation. I've done this before myself. I don't do it anymore. And he, um, and he led us through the gospel. And so where all our heads are bowed, and I'm going, man, everything he's saying, this is right. This is good. Everybody's, everybody's going to agree with this. This is awesome. And then he says, in a minute, I want you to, to stand up if you believe this. And so he's, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to stand up, but gosh, I can't not stand up for this. This is good stuff. So he says, everybody stand up, those who believe this. And so I stand up. And then he does what makes me mad. And he says, okay, everybody open your eyes. I was ticked. I'm just being honest, Roger, if you're watching. I was ticked because I felt like he, you know, because there's just 10 of us standing, okay, which is kind of what you and I would expect if we'd grown up in the church, right? Not many people stand at those invitations, but 10 of us stood, and I was one of those. And that day, I can never forget that. So I can never, if I ever doubt my faith, I have that I can look back at, and I can go, Oh, there was a moment when I crossed the line from unbelief to belief. And there's, I might have believed before, but there is no question I did believe afterwards. Some of you don't have that. Now, I can't tell you what time it was. I can't tell you what the date was. I know it was October of 83, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that you remember that you did cross that line of faith. Did you? Did you cross that line of faith? I was churched. I knew all about religion and Christianity. I'd been to church for 18 years. I had all the ribbons. I had a Bible engraved with my name on it, given to me by the church. I had a hymnal with my name on it, engraved on it, that the church gave me. Folks, I was in the club. I was all, right? And I didn't know the Lord, okay? But that day, I crossed the line of faith, okay? All that time, I was moving towards God. But there's still this point where I go, and, and the Bible calls it born from above, the contemporary way of saying it is born again. It's a spiritual birth, and the reason it's again is because there was a physical birth, right? We're all born physically. We're all here because of the birth of the, through water, but the birth through the Spirit is not everybody. In fact, Jesus says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and few find it. Those folks haven't been born again. The narrow way is the ones who have been, they've crossed that line. They understand enough to believe it's not my life, it's his. He gave it to me, and he, he is worthy, and I treasure him, and that transforms us, and it has been transforming me ever since, okay? I still got some of that ion in me, okay? I'm insecure. I have my issues. I have my things I want to attract and, and think will make me happier in life, but at the end of the day, the only one who truly satisfies is not my wife. It's Jesus Christ, and that is true, and my prayer for you is that you would figure out what that means for you today and that you would have the courage to act on the faith that God has already given you to trust him. Let's pray. Lord, I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the whole ballgame. This is what it's about. And over and over in your word, you point out in different ways how we can get to this place. But at the end of the day, you don't make it happen. You don't force it. 
but you empower it to happen. You give us grace and you give us faith and you give us truth. You draw us. You work in and around us. But at some point we have to decide, do I trust you? And I don't know how it all works, but I trust you that it works right. When we lean into you and say, I do to Christ, that you receive us in our belief and you transform us as we treasure you day by day. And so it's my prayer that you will help each person here, whether they're watching online or whether they're in the room, take that next step towards you. And if that next step happens to be across that line of faith, amen, glory to God, He is the one who made that happen. But you have a role to play. We are all answerable for our actions and our actions or inactions because we'll stand before you. I pray that you give us the courage to respond as we feel you leading us to right now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.